Amen. Thank you, Bonnie and Linda. Alrighty, if you have your Bibles, please open them to Colossians chapter 3 today. It's alright, Mike. We got about two more weeks before we get to the one needed today. <laughs> Alrighty, um, we're going to start with verse 5 and we're going to read through 11. So starting again, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with, with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. May God bless the reading of his word. So, Paul and Timothy have been using a very strong argument, and that is an argument against going off and being led astray by different practices that we think would lead us further into God and his glory. I mean, instead, they offered Jesus. Jesus himself as the way in which we are able to draw closer to God. And we saw that last week with verses 1 through 4 of this chapter, um, where we are told to keep our minds on, on the heavenly things, especially on Christ who's seated at the right hand of God. Um, and that should lead us to wonder, okay, well, how does that make us live a different lifestyle? Does it make us live a different lifestyle? Are we called to live differently? And now Paul and Timothy are going to argue Yes. Um, And so let's go ahead to verse 6, or 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now that we have our foundation, which is founded on Christ, Paul and Timothy can begin showing us what having a heavenly mindset will entail. We see that especially when they write, therefore, which causes us to reflect on what was previously said concerning our seeking the things above and placing our minds on things above. In contrast to things above, however, is that which is earthly. This term does not denote the physical realm, but instead focuses on that which is subject to the elemental powers of the world. That which is in us, which has been bound to the dark world around us. Such things are to be put to death, that is, they are to be overcome. Now that we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and his spirit is in us, we are to cooperate with his lordship by living in a way which is pleasing and glorifying to him. But Paul and Timothy must inform us what is considered earthly. What are lifestyles, or what are some elements of that which is earthly in us? This leads to the first of two vice lists in this section of verses. This first list begins with sexual immorality. Uh, The term for sexual immorality is porneia, and it is a word which we have looked at previously in other places within Scripture, such as Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians especially. Uh, This word porneia is used as a shorthand of describing sexual immorality sins, which are found in Leviticus 18-20. through We want to be careful, as always, from assuming that this simply means adultery, as instead all of the sexual immorality sins listed in Leviticus are in view. 
Um, so that includes incest, it includes homosexuality, it includes um, bestiality, things like that. Now the second mention is impurity, and this can mean ritual impurity, but in context seems to mean any kind of moral impurity, or at least those with a sexual connotation especially. The third, passion, um, that one is not necessarily passion in and of itself, but instead it has a context of lusting. So because of that, it falls into the impurity or immorality, or some common translated again, not as passion, but as lust. Thus, like the previous two, it may rely heavily on improper or immoral sexual behavior, which would probably run rampant in the Greek Empire at the time. Um, and as such, most scholars tend to hold that these first three especially are focused on such improper sexual behavior. The final two, however, do not necessarily follow the same trend as they focus on evil desire and covetousness. Evil desire is more defined by the evil aspect rather than the desire aspect. Um, desire, it's actually neutral when it, it comes to a moral perspective. Evil, however, is not. As such, this likely refers to the general evil desires which can simply occur within us, um, whether it's to lie, to cheat, to steal, um, the sexual sins that we just talked about, things like that. Finally, covetousness or greed is seen as the last one. Such coveting brings the list back to the Ten Commandments especially, where coveting is prohibited. As such, some also wonder if this covetousness is actually the main reason for the rest of um, the sins, especially the sexual aspect ones. Because we covet, or we have this greed of wanting more, it can cause us to fall into more and more sexual sins, or any sins, or fall more and more into darkness itself. Though it could simply be a way of concluding the whole list by warning against coveting others. Ultimately, Paul and Timothy conclude that such things are idolatry. It is interesting for them to say this, since idolatry had a very specific understanding of a literal image uh, of a god or a deity at the time. Thus, it is possible that what they expound upon is that these behaviors are the images of the earthly self, that self which was bound to the elemental powers and reflects their darkness, which is um, far from the light of Christ. Now verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul and Timothy now reflect on such behaviors and lifestyles by warning that they end up leading to eschatological end times judgment. That is to say, God's judgment is coming upon the wicked, and the wicked are those who practice such sinful behaviors as the ones listed above. Thus there is a warning to continue to put on, uh, to stop putting on these things of death, for these things will ultimately lead one into a greater death through the wrath of God. Verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. They now focus on the reality of the believers. As such, they were once like the world around them. In the world, the earthly realm, such sinful acts are typical behavior. We don't need to look very far these days to see how that's the case. As such, Paul and Timothy remind the readers that they were living in such a way as this. They were walking, having these kinds of lifestyles just like the world around them. The logical problem with this is that because they were living such lifestyles, they were deserving the wrath of God. 
Yet this is what brings us back to the verses we looked at last week. Is that because of Christ, they will no longer face the wrath of God. And being under his lordship, they will be able to put to death that which has put them uh, to death to begin with. Still, they are to be reminded of where they have come. Likely to remind them who has taken them far from the wrath that they deserve. Now verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. We now come to the second vice list in this portion of scripture. They recognized that they were once part of the world which was walking in the wrath to come. But now this is not the case. Before they get into the vices themselves, we do notice that they say, um, that they do not say, put to death. But instead they say, put them all away. This kind of language is reminiscent of putting away clothing. We are to put these vices, these practices, away like we would tattered robes. The purpose of putting them away, of course, is that it will lead us to the glorious robe of Christ over us. Still, what are we to put away? Well, the list begins with anger, wrath, and malice. Both anger and wrath occur together in scriptures and can be interchanged with one another. Because of this, it is hard to pinpoint the difference between the two. Though in the end, we can recognize it has to do with unjust anger or wrath, or unholy anger and unholy wrath, especially when we couple it with malice. In it, it is all ill toward others, especially Christians, which we are to refrain from having. Slander and obscene talk also go together. The word slander actually comes from the same word that we use for blasphemy. Uh, but in context, it seems to be focusing less on blasphemous talk against God and more toward defamation or defamation of others. To talk badly about other individuals or in a way which would cause harm to them, again, especially Christians. This is further established with obscene talk. This is not necessarily against coarse language in general. I mean, we've read Galatians and Paul uses coarse language there a bit. Um, But especially against others, speaking poorly of others in particular fellow believers. Most scholars are unsure whether to take the final from your mouth as referring to the whole group of words, thus keeping anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, or if it's just focused on the final two. Um, So to put away anger, wrath, and malice, and from your mouth, put away uh, slander and obscene talk. Ultimately, no conclusion can be made on the subject, though we could be reminded that from the heart, comes what we speak. And so even if we are not necessarily showing anger, we may be speaking it. So it seems best to interpret it in that way, a warning against all kinds of unholy anger, wrath, and malice, and slander, and obscene talk, regardless of how they occur. Now verse 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I love these two verses, by the way. I think they're spectacular. Um, So we now have the communal aspect of this put into focus as they say, do not lie to one another. Lying, when we consider it, goes very much against God, for our God is a God of truth. To lie is to spread that which is false. And as such, the scripture speaks so greatly against lying because it goes against God in his holiness and in his truthfulness. Thus, any kind of lying goes against God himself 
because of it. And that's why in Revelation 21.8, um, all liars will have their place in, in the wrath to come or in the pit of fire. Yet why is it that we should refrain from lying? Why should we refrain from the vice list at all? The answer is found in the second half of verse 9, which says, Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. This is a classic paradigm within the scriptures. The old man versus the new man. It is reminiscent of Romans when Adam is considered the old man and all that it entails in sin and in death. And Christ is considered the new man. In this context, it is much the same. We have put off the old self, which is found in Adam, and it has sin, and it has death. We have put this away when we have put on Christ, the new man. This is further established by the second half of verse 10, when they say, which is being renewed in knowledge after uh, the image of its creator. To be renewed recognizes it as a process. It is a continuing process which is occurring within us. We might call it sanctification, the upward trend in our lives to further reflect the new man who is Jesus Christ. We also notice that it is being renewed in knowledge. This knowledge is the knowledge of God made right. We are further understanding the truth of the gospel and the truth of our God, and as such, this knowledge will have a profound impact on our daily lives. If we are to seek the things above, that is Christ, and if we are to set our minds on things above, again, Christ, then that will lead us to a lifestyle reflecting this. And we sang that today, and take time to be holy. The end goal of our lifestyle is to be made in the image of its creator. That is, we are made in the image of God, and it has implanted on us. But we also recognize Christ is the true image of God, untainted by sin. As such, we are being transformed to reflect him day by day by day. And it is our responsibility to be faithful to continue to take off the old self and put on the new self, which is a reflection of Jesus himself. Now verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Um, We now come to the final verse of this section, and in it we find the corporate nature of all that we have seen. Simply put, it is not simply a putting on a new nature from an old nature. Instead, it is a and I'm going to argue against this later, but it's kind of a new humanity itself which is being shown to us in Christ. A complete and transformation, I should say, of humanity. This is seen how they say, there is not Greek or Jew. These two terms reflect the dichotomy of the day, Jews and Gentiles. It is not uncommon for Paul especially to use the term Greek to describe Gentiles. As such, he seems to be doing this here to show the dichotomy between those who are outside, the Greeks, and those who are inside, the Jews. This is further established by the term circumcised and uncircumcised. As such, these terms further establish that uh, previous point of Jews versus Gentiles. There's a split between them both. We then have a curious statement of barbarian and Scythian. So far in the list, Greek and Jew go together as you circumcise and uncircumcise. Barbarian and Scythian, however, do not really go together in the same way. Barbarians were considered non-Greeks, 
uh, those who were uncivilized. In fact, the term barbarian, it, w- it was a derogative notion for the way that they talked because it sounded like they were just saying bar, bar, bar. Uh, Scythians, on the other hand, they were known as the worst of the worst of the barbarians and were often associated with slave traders. As such, some have tried to argue barbarians are free uncivilized and the Scythians were the slave uncivilized. But the truth is we can't be sure the reason for these terms and instead we can only take it for what it means. Barbarian and Scythian, these worst in the dregs of society. Finally, we have slave and free. This is similar to the earlier dichotomy, though it seems not so much on ethnicity as it does with social status. Free being the higher social standing than a slave. Ultimately, Paul and Timothy conclude that Christ is all and in all. As such, there is no more terms to use such as this. The new humanity, or the redeemed humanity, includes all kinds of people, all races, all statuses. There's none too much a slave to be in Christ, and none too free. Christ is for the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And even the worst dregs in society, such as the barbarians and the Scythians, Christ has introduced this redeemed, and in that case, new humanity, which goes against and beyond all the other boundaries which humanity has established for itself. Alright. The main point of these verses are to show that being in Christ... And having such freedom will not automatically cause us to live however we want to. There are elements of the old man which we are to continue to put off, to put to death. And we will put them to death if we are in Christ. In Christ, then, we find this new redeemed humanity. Whereas Adam was in sin and in death, in Christ we find righteousness and life which will lead us to further reflect the image of the Creator in our lifestyles. All right. Let's let's talk a little bit about this. Previously in Colossians, we have dealt with the idea of certain lifestyle practices. In particular, Paul and Timothy critique those who would force others to religious practices as a means of destroying the flesh. Paul and Timothy recognize that such practices will not destroy the flesh, which is our sinful natures, or our propensity for sin. Instead, they recognize that it is in Christ we will have the strength to do what is necessary, and that is to put to death these sinful practices. Because of this, we see the difference between what Paul and Timothy offer and what the false teachers are offering. They offer a means of overcoming themselves through ascetic practices such as rituals, Sabbaths, abstaining from certain foods and drink. Meanwhile, Paul and Timothy counter with Christ. Likewise, we notice something else. If we consider the practices of those who claim asceticism uh, as a way to break free from our sinful inclinations, we want to consider what Jesus himself says on the topic in Matthew 15. He says, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, 
Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. (laughs) Sometimes Jesus can be a little harsh. Um, Verse 14, though. uh, 15. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And if you thought Jesus was a little angry before... (laughs) And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Here we see Jesus arguing the same point as Paul and Timothy do in Colossians. While we can practice certain spiritual disciplines, the truth is that they will not save us from the problem which is inherent within us, which is our broken hearts. In order for us to be changed and transformed, we will need to be given new hearts, which are focused on something other than what our, our defiled hearts are focused on. So while Paul and Timothy have critiqued those who would say that we can overcome the darkness within us through these lifestyles and through these life practices, this does not mean that they are antinomian. That means um, against law, um, that they allow any kind of lifestyle practice. The simple truth is, not every kind or lifestyle is acceptable to God. And Paul and Timothy recognize it. They see that these practices mentioned in the text are part of the elemental powers of darkness which goes against God. Paul and Timothy recognize that such lifestyles of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness are worthy of the wrath of God. As such, they warn us, put them to death. If these ways of living are worthy of death, don't live them. But how can we put them to death? How is it possible for us to do so? The answer to this has already been given to us within Colossians. When we read, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, uh, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Notice Christ is the one who has disarmed the authorities and triumphed over them. And he is also the head, the only one by whom we can even begin to have growth. Thus, the way we triumph over ourselves, over the sinful desires which we struggle against, is by being faithful to Jesus. It is by placing our minds on him who is in the heavens, he who is seated at the right hand of God in glory. When we are faithful to him and when we seek him, then we will be putting off our old self, the old man, and putting on the new self, the new man. Or as it said elsewhere, putting off Adam, putting on Christ. And just as the text itself says. Now what is so wonderful about all of this? Well consider it. We, each of us, were once in the realm of darkness. Each one of us can say, I have been there. I have been under the power of darkness. I have been under the dominion of the elemental powers of the world. Each of us could in all honesty say that we have not struggled against sin at one point in our lives. But instead we used to embrace it as the only way of life. What does that mean for us according to today's text? 
It means each one of us were under the wrath of God, for it is because of such lifestyle, such sinfulness, that wrath is coming. Because of our defiled hearts, we deserved wrath. None of us can make the claim otherwise. None of us can say that we were right and that we've always been good or that we've always honored and glorified God. Instead, we have been the idolatrous ones, worshiping these elemental powers and crafting these idols with our hearts. This is what is so spectacular about it all, though, is that that is how it once was. That is not how it is anymore if we are in Christ. Instead, if we are in Christ, we can put off that old man and put on the new man. If we are in Christ, we are no longer under the dominion of darkness. If we are in Christ, we are no longer under its sovereign sway. Instead, we can put these things to death. We can stand firm against them rather than be be subject to them. We can battle them. We can fight. We can overcome. How do I know this? Because Christ has overcome. Because he has defeated them. And if he is in me, then I can as well. And so can you. The Christian then is truly free. We are freed from the bondage of sin and freed from the bondage of our wills to live in sin and only in sin. Freed from the wrath of God without fear. Freed to enjoy this life for the glory of God and freed to enjoy the love of God forevermore. So many believe that the Christian life is one of rules and regulations which bind us, but the truth is we are a truly freed people if we are in Christ. Prior to our new state in Christ, there was no putting on anything except for death. But now, now we can put on life itself because this life is in Christ. So as we consider all of these things, it reminds us of the greatness of our God who is able to overcome the darkness and by his grace allows us to overcome the darkness within us. That God would free us and then give us a responsibility to put it to death reminds us that God wants us to be partakers as well. Yet, this can only even begin with Christ. And as such, it is His glory which we are given, His glory which we seek, His glory and His life that is given to us. My dear friends and family, put to death these things. Put to death the darkness which can influence even us. Continue to strive for the goal. Strive for the kingdom of the Son of God who has redeemed and who has bought us with a price. He is worthy of us. The Lamb is worthy. In Him we will find the strength to overcome, to be able to put to death these plagues of sin which we struggle against. You know, that causes me to think of something more. All too often we can think of the struggle as negative. What I mean is, have any of you ever struggled against sin before and thought, I cannot believe I am struggling against this sin. I should be over this by now. But let me tell you, don't think too lightly of the struggle. The fact that you struggle against it, the fact that you are in battle against yourself, is not evidence that God is not with you. It is evidence that he is with you. Otherwise, you would not have no struggle at all. You would have no spirit in you urging you against the vice. But as it is, As you struggle, you show that His Spirit is in you. As you put these things to death, you are given evidence that God is with you. So struggle against these parts of you which the darkness knows are your weaknesses and trust in God who gives us strength in our weakness. It also reminds me of something more. 
While it is true that our wills are bound to sin prior to conversion, it is something spectacular to consider that God actually saves our wills. As it is, part of God's will for redemption would be that he would do it himself, and that he would redeem our wills and give us freedom to fight against the darkness, to be partakers of the battle for light, and with our very wills which have been redeemed. Thus, the warning is evident. Do not let your freedom lead you to paths of destruction, lest you find you are not in Christ. Instead, use the newfound freedom found in God to put these things which are in you to death. Ultimately, God deserves the glory for all of this, for it is by his hand that we are freed, and it is by his hand which allows our wills to fight instead of submit. So fight on, battle the darkness within and without, and receive the strength which comes from Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God in power. Alrighty, this leads us to something further to consider about this week's text, and that's what occurs toward the end of the portion of Scripture that we read. That is, when Paul and Timothy are discussing taking off the old self and putting on the new one, we notice how they say, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. How unbelievable and spectacular is that statement? When you really consider it, it's wonderful. It's almost beyond comprehension. You know, so many people believe that the main purpose of God in their lives is to give them all of their desires. That the whole goal is to get their best life now. Their best life now being one of happiness or wealth or health or whatever you may have. So many people believe that God is just Santa Claus in the sky waiting to dole out gifts upon them. What a superficial understanding of God. What a failure Such a view is to understand the magnitude of what God has done in the cross. What a poor understanding of what it means to place our eyes on things above, to place our gaze upon the living Son of God. Do not be deceived by such empty pursuits of God. Do not be deceived by false knowledge of God, by those who claim to know God and will tell you that the ultimate goal is That he is all about you and what you want now. No! Do not tell them, let them tell you that this is it. No! The purpose of the cross, the purpose of redemption, the purpose of all of it, is that God would be glorified through his son who redeems us to make us look like him. Who redeems us to be given knowledge of God himself. This is the purpose of the cross, of redemption. It is not for us to focus on the here and now per se. It is to realize that it is so much more than we can even begin to desire in Christ. That we who were dead in our sin are now alive in Christ. That we who were once under wrath, deserving of justice, are now freed from these things. That we who once lived in sin can now live in righteousness. Foolishness of man who would diminish the true purpose of God to transform us further into the image we were meant to be. As though that is a small thing. As though that is not the main goal. As though that is less than getting everything else. If that were all that the blessings of God would be given to us, it would be more than enough to fill us for all eternity with joy and with peace. That is how spectacular it is to have this renewal in us. To have this God take us by the hand and save us. My heart could burst over the joy of knowing this. My heart could burst knowing that the redemption of God allows me to know him more. 
And that this knowledge further transformed my life into the image of his son. Could we have any greater blessing than this? Can we have any greater blessing than knowing that you and that I are being made more and more into the image of Jesus? I understand that there are many who would sway us, but let us not be swayed. Instead, let us cling to the truth of Jesus. Let us grow in true knowledge of God and let that lead us further into the image of Jesus. May our God God remind us daily that that is the goal. That is the purpose. And that this itself is the greatest of blessings he has bestowed upon us. Let this be our foundation. For if Christ is our foundation, then that means that when we don't get what we want, we can still rejoice. It means that when sorrow happens, we can still rejoice. It means that when our hearts break, we can rejoice because beyond all of it, God has redeemed us, has given us knowledge of himself, and that he is making us into the image of his son day by day. And in all of this, we have abundant life no matter what. Praise God for this life. Praise God that we have been freedom we have been redeemed and praise God that the freedom leads us to glorify him praise God that we can look upon the son as our savior and also our king praise God that we can live under his sovereignty battling against the darkness rather than the sovereignty of the elemental powers of the world praise God for Jesus for the image revealed for the renewal within for his great grace in our lives Alrighty, now this leads us to one final point that I wrote after the fact. Um, So we'll see how this goes. In our society today, we have witnessed an increase in something called racism. While the media would like to say that all racism is Caucasian against all other races, uh, the truth is racism exists on all fronts. Simply put, there's racism against all colored people, white or black or otherwise. In today's text, we have a response against such racism. When Paul and Timothy say, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. As many know, the Jews at the time detested the Gentiles for their lifestyles, for their abhorrent behavior as dictated by the law and their tradition. The Gentiles did not exactly love the Jewish people either, who were often contentious and hard-headed to not worship a plethora of gods the way the rest of society would. Thus, for the authors to say these things, to say that there is no longer Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, is to say something akin to, there is neither white nor black, then um, there is no races. What is the conclusion that they come to in response? Christ is all and in all. As it is, within the Christian faith, we come to an understanding about racism. That is, that it should not exist. There is no excuses for a Christian racist. There is no good argument for a Christian racist. Such a thing cannot exist. The rest of the world has racism. Has its hatred toward others for various reasons which aren't very good. Christians, however, do not. For we know that all humans are created in the image of God. Likewise, we know we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
When Jesus talks about this, he uses the parable of the Good Samaritan. A Jew attacked on the robbers and left for dead on the road. All the other Jews, the ones who are supposed to be loving, pious, they come across and walk around him. It's the Samaritan, the historical enemy of the Jewish people, who comes along and he takes care of the Jew. Bandages him, pays for the man's rooms so he can heal. Christ is defining love there. Love is not necessarily emotional. It is not even necessarily liking the other individual per se. And I use the, uh, remember the guy who slapped me at work that one day? Yeah. yeah. You know what, that's another indication of when you can love someone and not necessarily like them. <laughs> I didn't like the guy at the time when I was nice to him, did I? Did not like him at all. <laughs> but I can still love the man. I can still be kind and gracious to him despite the fact that, you know, so much bad had happened between us. So instead, it is showing kindness, compassion, empathy, grace, and even peace toward those who are different from you. No matter who your neighbor is, whether they have the same skin pigment as you, they are different than you. doesn't matter. As such, you are called to love them rather than despise them or have ill will towards them. So we have two biblical concepts which should defeat any racism within us to begin with. The first is that all humanity, no matter who they are, they're created in the image of God. The second is that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, no matter who that neighbor may be. There is now one other way to defeat racism, and that is the recognition that in Christ we are all made new. We all put on a new humanity found in Christ when we are in Christ. There is no people group who are far too far outside this grace of God through the gospel. In our society, racism exists. The way that we are able to defeat defeat such hatred is to proclaim something different. We are to be faithful to proclaim the truth that there really is only one human race in the scriptures, which leads to whether this race is redeemed or not. There are those who are in Adam, And there are those who are in Christ. This has nothing to do with the racism we see in America and the world today. They are completely focused on the redeemed and those who are not redeemed. And in truth, we who are redeemed have no reason to boast, since we too were once part of Adam and not part of Christ. Thus we should have compassion on the unredeemed, having once been unredeemed ourselves. This perspective should change our understanding. It should encourage us to stand firm against racism of all kinds. It should cause us to weep for any group of people who fear and who are scared to walk down the street just because of the color of their skin. It should cause us to stand firm against such actions that would cause them to feel that way. We should stand against any form of racism regardless of what it is, recognizing that any from Adam can be transferred into Christ. Our society is broken. It has been for a very long time. There is poison in the well, and we all seem to want to drink from the same well. Christ, he's a different well, and he removes that poison Through him we have knowledge of God which transforms the way we think about everything from the world around us to the people around us. Be transformed with the true knowledge of God and put to death any form of hatred toward others you may possess, remembering that Christ loved you when you hated him. 
There is no excuse for racism in Christianity, and Christians must be the light during the time of darkness. Otherwise, there is no hope for the society around us. And of course, that leads to the gospel of Jesus. Um, And I know we're... Oh, no, I guess we're doing okay. I don't know. That clock's wrong. Um, (laughs) That clock's wrong, so I can't go by that. But I'm going to. (laughs) But no, you know, that leads us to the gospel. It does, because the gospel is what allows us to be transformed to begin with. It's the gospel of Jesus that we can look and we're able to step out of the mire of the world and cling to something even greater, which is Christ. It's Jesus himself that allows all of this to happen. It allows you to look back after 50 years of being in Christ and saying, I'm not the same person I was 50 years ago. And even if, let's say, there are elements of you that are the same, that you're still struggling against, you can say, you know what? I've struggled for 50 years. And God has given me the grace to stand against it. Good for you. Praise God for you. For the struggle. For the battle. For the putting to death. You know, it all begins with our origins, of course. It all begins with the fact that God created the world. If God doesn't create the world, we're not here, (laughs) are we? But as it is, we are here. And guess what? We're all created in the image of God. All humanity. And that's where we get the final topic of today. All humanity is created under the image of God. We all descend from Adam. Every single one of us. Therefore, because of that, We have to recognize that all humanity has worth. All humanity has sanctity to life. And that's a good thing. That there can't be one group of people that rises up and says, they're less than I am. And then we say, no, we're the same because we've all been born from Adam. The problem, though, is that people do rise up. And they do say, I'm better than they are. And we've seen it for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And that's because we've had a fall. And that's what we see today by the fact that there are things in us that we fight against. That there are things within us that we say, that's not right about me and I need to change. Because guess what? Every time I say this, we're broken. We have broken relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world around us. Well, guess what it means for us to have a broken relationship with ourselves? It means that we are in sin. And we fight against ourselves all the time when we sin. And so as it is, we accrue a debt because we do have all of this within us. We do struggle, and we do fail, and we do sin. And God, as it says in today's text, there's wrath to come for these things. How do we escape the wrath? How do we escape this perpetual cycle of sin, of failure, of brokenness? How can our relationships be restored finally? How can we put off the exhaustion of saying, I am so tired of this, of walking blindly and being led blindly into a pit? Well, in John 1, we learn that the light has come and the darkness shall not overcome it. That light is Jesus Christ. 
He is the Lamb of God. It is by Him that we have been redeemed. It is through His life, death, and resurrection that happened in time, space, history, and it's in flesh. And guess what? It's real. It happened. And He redeems. And now He's seated at the right hand of God in power. And that is how we overcome because of what He has done. And all that we're called to do is have faith in Him, to keep our eyes focused on Him, to follow where He calls us to go. That's what it means to have faith in Him. To trust that all that has happened has happened. And then to live a repentant lifestyle which comes naturally for those who have faith. That's part of it. That's the greatness of it. The fact that you can live in a repentant lifestyle. That you can be transformed by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. So you don't have to be bound and enslaved to sin anymore. So don't be enslaved. Let the freedom have you fight. Because it is a fight, it's a battle, but by God's grace, we will win this battle because he has won. And guess what? For those who don't have faith and those who don't repent and for those who continue on in the lifestyle, the text says the wrath of God is coming. What do you think that means? It means judgment is coming. And we have to be faithful to proclaim the second death will occur. The fire is going to happen. And we might not understand it. We might not know what it means. But guess what? It is a wrath. It's judgment. But for those who are in Christ, there is no judgment. First John tells us, there is no longer fear but love. We have love because of what Jesus has done. And that is how we love others. That's how we love our society around us. That is how we are able to overcome the society which keeps on trying to drag us down. And we say no. And we can rise because of the love that is in us through Christ. It's a powerful love to be transformed. It is a powerful love that God has given us through Jesus. As we go out today, and as we consider the text that we have, we're going to be bombarded over and over again by these false things that the world will tell us. Whether it's people within Christianity, false teachers within Christianity, who will say, this is the goal, that God will give you all you want. Or those outside of Christianity who say, you should hate this person because they're different than you. No. Instead, let's rise. Fight against the darkness within. Fight against the darkness without. Because we are not under the sovereign rule of that anymore. We are under Jesus Christ. Let him lead you now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have done through your son Jesus. As we look back on our lives, whether it be the last 10 seconds or the last 50 years, we can see lives that have been led by your son Jesus. And that you have not let us go that you have continued to keep us and persevere us, that you have called us to a faith that you yourself provide. And yet at the same time, you give us the ability to partake, to enjoy and to fight the battles around us with our minds, with our hearts, with all of who we are. God, let us be worthy Let us seek you and continue to lead us further into the glory of the life of Jesus Christ. For it is by his grace that we stand 
It is by his grace that we move and have our being. May he alone be praised for all of our lives. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.